Please take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Some people ask, I suppose, how do you ever decide what you're going to preach about? And uh, we give a lot of prayer and thought to that subject. And uh, you, some of you will remember that when I was the Sunday night preacher, when Dr. Milliken was the pastor, uh, I was preaching through Second Corinthians and then decided to, it was time for me to quit. Well, some people haven't cooperated in that very well. But um, anyway, I, I, as I thought about it, I thought I'm just going to go on in Second Corinthians. And after praying about it, that's what I uh, have decided to do for tonight. Now, please keep your Bible open at the passage because we're going to be looking at uh, it in some detail a little bit later on. I want to begin by reading uh, the passage from 14, verse 14 to verse 18. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And verse 18, at the end of the verse, it says, says the Lord Almighty. It's always a great privilege to occupy the pulpit. I never expected at my age to be doing it, but I appreciate the opportunity to give the message tonight. The subject is, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And there is, in case somebody does not know what a yoke looks like, there's a, there's a picture of some oxen that are yoked together. And my grandfather used those in the early days. Not those two particular cows. But. <laughs> the subject of separation from the world, which is this very subject, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, conjures up distasteful ideas in the average Christian. Now, it has been given to extremes. On the one hand, there are what is called the pillar saints. And there you have a picture of one Simon Stylites. Simon Stylites was a Syrian who spent, 60, who spent 37 years on a pole that was 60 feet high and three feet across at the top. 
and he felt by being separated from the world, he could really be a holy one. And those who followed his example were known as the pillar saints. Now, those of us who studied church history know all about the pillar saints, and, and somebody will say, well, there aren't any of those today. Well, that's not really true, because we come to another individual who lives in Katsky, Georgia, in the Russian Georgia, and there on that tower is a house, and he has lived up there for 27 years because he wants to be close to God. So you have, on the one hand, the pillar saints. And then on the other hand, you have those who enter into total indulgence in the ways of the world so that you can't really tell a Christian from a non-Christian by observing their life and their lifestyle. And then you have everything in between. You have groups who have uh, distinctive clothing and distinctive hairstyling. You have groups who have the, a distinctive style of speech, and we think particularly of the Quakers and their these and those. You have groups who make up lists of acceptable practice and unacceptable practice. And if you do the unacceptable, you're out. And if you do the acceptable, you're in. And then there are groups who judge not only what you do, but those with whom you associate. And if you are a friend of the wrong person, you're on the outs of that particular group. So we have a whole variety of things when we're talking about what it means to be separated from the world. Frequently, the attitude of people to any discussion of separation in the world is one of defensiveness, and they don't like the preacher. They say the preacher is a dispenser of gloom and doom. The preacher is a destroyer of happiness, and... It's none of his business anyway, how I live. And so their guard is up to refute everything that the preacher says from the sacred desk. And when we speak of separation from the world, they'll cry, narrowness and square and prudish and a purveyor of legalism. And the last thing I want to present tonight is legalism. They ask the question, why shouldn't I do this or that? What is wrong with me doing this or that? What is the harm in it for me? I simply remind you of what Jesus said. Jesus said, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Now, that's a significant text. You do not belong to the world. And so exactly what does that mean? Now, it is not my purpose tonight to give you a set of rules for your life. It is not my purpose tonight to identify everything that I consider to be worldly. It is not my purpose tonight to harangue you as the people of God. It is not my purpose to emotionally charge you to change your ways. 
It is my purpose to confront us with Scripture. What does the Bible say and what does it mean? It is my purpose to honestly contemplate the meaning of the Word of God for your life and activities and for my life and activities. And in order to do this, we are going to examine the verses that are before us under four headings. And the first heading is the command of separation. And there it is. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. There is a very obvious connection here to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 10. And there the scripture says, the command of God, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. And based on that illustration, the apostle says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, why not plow with the ox and the donkey together? Well, under the Old Testament standard, the ox was a clean animal and the donkey was an unclean animal. The ox was used for food and the donkey was not to be used for food. The ox could be used for sacrifice and the donkey was never used for sacrifice. And so God said, do not yoke them together. They do not belong together. They are fundamentally not compatible. I read a quotation that said this, God at the first divided light from darkness, and ever since man has been trying to blend them. That's a pretty good statement. God divided the light from darkness, but don't we always try to go a little bit farther and try to blend light and darkness? The word yoked means coupled together or bound together. It is the very same word that is used for joined in marriage. Very same word. The unequal yoke, then, is where a person is joined to another of a different kind or of a different nature. Now look at verse 17, chapter 5 and verse 17. And it says, if we're in Christ, we're a new creature. That's one difference. Then look at verse 18. We are reconciled to God. That's another difference. In verse 20, it says we are an ambassador for Christ. And then when you get on to chapter 6 and verse 1, it says we are a co-laborer with God. So that separates the Christian out to be a different kind of person. And God says, do not be yoked to another of a different kind. And that's a pretty plain statement. Now, normally, this text is used to speak about marriage and to say that you should not have a mixed marriage, meaning a believer and an unbeliever. And I could spend a lot of time 
telling you illustrations of how those kinds of marriages bring heartache and disaster, and they are not in God's plan. And I believe, therefore, that the text properly applies to marriage. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. I believe also that the text applies to other relationships, since marriage isn't particularly spoken of here. I believe it speaks to business partnerships. I believe it speaks to social memberships. And I believe it speaks to friendships and associations. Do not be unequally yoked. The context of this passage is don't be yoked together with those who are critics of the gospel. That's the context if you read the entire passage in which this is given. So let's make some applications as we go along. Now, let me be clear. This text does not forbid contact with unbelievers. Some people say, well, let me go out of the world and I'll go on my pillar and then I won't be touched by the world. That's not what it's saying at all. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to go out of the world. So he's not saying you can't have associate relationships with people who are unbelievers. There's another interesting passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 27. And it says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, what do you do? He says, go and eat whatever is put before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. And that's a whole other sermon that I could, uh, could give. But uh, literally, he's saying, if an unbeliever invites you out to dinner and you want to go, Go. Who knows? But you may have an influence upon them to, con to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So it does not forbid contact. It does forbid being yoked together. Now let me give you what I believe a, a definition of being yoked together is. It is being bound in such a way that freedom of action is forfeited. If the group decides to do something that you consider inappropriate or immoral, if you're a member of the group legally, then you're, you're stuck. And we don't want to be in a group that is forcing us to go against the convictions that the Word of God places upon us. 
Let's move on and look at the case for separation. That is in verses 14 through 16. And the case for separation is set forth in five questions followed by a declaration. Question number one, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Well, they are opposites. They stand in contrast with each other. They stand in opposition to each other. So what kind of fellowship and sympathy can we have? What unites them? Nothing. Question number two. What fellowship can light have with darkness? Fellowship meaning is the word koinonia in the Greek, and it means a sharing of purpose. What sharing of purpose does light have with darkness? And obviously the answer is there's none whatsoever. They are opposites. Question number three. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? The word Belial means worthless. So what fellowship is there between Christ and a worthless person? It also became a Hebrew epithet for Satan. So you can read it, and in the understanding of the people to whom it was written, what harmony is there between Christ and Satan? Is there any harmony? Absolutely not. They are diametrically opposed to each other. Question number four. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Or you could say in common with an infidel. And the answer is they are opposites. They have nothing in common when you get down to the reality of the issues. And then question number five, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And the answer is none whatsoever. The temple of God was holy. The worship of idols was always in, in involving immoral practices and so on. Back in Exodus chapter 20, God laid down the commands, and he said, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. When you move through the kings of Israel and Judah, you find out that they often threw out that practice. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 3, you read this, I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. That was God's statement about the temple. Now listen, in 2 Kings chapter 21, we read, He, meaning Manasseh, took a carved Asherah pole, which was an idol, and he put it into the temple. 
And when you come to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 6, you read, And he, this was Josiah now, who was a good king, took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem, and he burned it there. And if you read chapter 23 of 2 Kings in its entirety, you will note the length with which they went to cleanse the temple of God so that it was holy and totally dedicated back to the service of God. You also remember that in Luke chapter 19, verse 45, that when Jesus entered into the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. To join the temple of God and idols was in Congress. It was unthinkable because they are opposites. So then you come to a declaration, and you have it in verse 16, 2 Corinthians 6, 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Just as there was the temple of Solomon where God chose to place his presence, now in the New Testament, he says, you are the temple of the living God. Now, that is true in two senses. The first sense is that my body is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And I believe that every Christian who, every person who has really become a Christian, accepted Christ as his personal Savior, is born again, whatever term you want to use about uh, being a Christian, is that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And therefore, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty serious thing to think about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, do, not, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Let me tell you a, 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 what I consider a classic story. A friend of mine was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he and one of his fellow students, uh, being friends, were going to a church one Sunday morning. And between Sunday school and church, they went outside, and his friend, this good seminary student, lit up a cigarette. And uh, he was smoking and while they chatted, and, and my friend said to him, come on, let's go in. He said, what, bring this in there? And he said, why not? Well, he said, that's the temple of God. That's a holy place. And my friend said, well, the last time I read the Bible, you have that thing sticking into the temple right now. And he put down his cigarette and went into church and was convicted about, about that. Our bodies are the temple of God, and the temple of God is to be holy. 
Second, the second meaning is that believers together, you and I together as believers, form the temple of God collectively. And that is taught throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, you read, In whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, You are the temple, or you are God's building. So since we are God's temple, collectively, we dare not defile it. And the reason is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, you read this, caution, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are God's temple. The word destroy there means to wither, to corrupt, or to ruin. Now that puts a pretty high standard on us. Not only am I to be protective of my body, which is the temple of God, so that it is kept holy and fit for the Lord's use, but that means if I am a member of a church, I have an impact on the testimony of the church. And since I am a member of the temple, the building of God, I dare not corrupt that building. The third thing I want to talk to you about is the call for separation. Would you look at verse 17? And verse 17 begins this way. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. So God calls us to a separate kind of life. In view of God's nature, 1 Peter 1.16, it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In view of the fact that God has given us a new nature when he reconciled us to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. And in view of the fact that there is no shade of agreement or fellowship between the old and the new, God calls us to come out voluntarily, deliberately, and decisively, and to avoid unclean or tainted things all around us. Secondly, he calls us to make God and his righteousness our total concept of life. How does this act of mine fit into God's program for my life? And number three, he calls us to walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And 1 John 1, 6 says it plainly. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth, do not practice the truth. 
Now, if you want to find out what the rules are for this separation, you need to read Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 because they give us the principles for making a personal choice. One of these days I'll prepare a message on that on those two passages and and uh, talk about it but th- those two passages in particular give us the the rules for making choices fourth i want to talk to you about the consolation of separation look at verse 17 again touch not the unclean thing and i will receive you I will receive you. There is the consolation. Though the world may not receive you, and though they may may make fun of you, though they may say you are foolish and prudish, at least they recognize that we're different than they are. And that's the point that God is making. We are different. We've been bought with a price. We've been reconciled to God. We're ambassadors for Christ. Are we acting like ambassadors when we go out into the world? God will receive you and welcome you. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, he said, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Almighty. And that speaks to me of protection and of love, and of fellowship. You belong to him. You are heirs of all that he is and has, and you have a family relationship. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. We sing that. Do we act like it, and do we believe it? Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you live that way, there is a personal joy and peace that you have down inside. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Secondly, there is a spiritual strength. And there is a witness that is evident. And people will say, you know, there's something different about your life. And that's the point, that we are to be different because we have a heavenly kingdom to which we aspire. And then third, there are lavish blessings that only a relationship with him can bring about. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters at the same time. He will hate one of them and love the other, or he will be faithful to one and dislike the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. Let's read it this way. You cannot serve God and the world at the same time. Where is your treasure? In heaven or on earth? Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, Just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
And as believers, we need to walk in a new and different lifestyle from all of the world around us. And we need to make choices, not to disassociate ourselves from unbelievers, but to be sure that we're not bound together with them so that our witness for Christ is compromised. I love some of the writings of William Barclay. He gives such great illustrations. And he tells that in the early church, a man's Christianity often meant that he had to get out from his job. One of the most famous modern examples of this thing was F.W. Charrington, and this would be in England now. He was the heir to a fortune made by brewing. He was passing a tavern one night, and there was a woman waiting at the door. A man, obviously her husband, came out, and she was trying to keep him from going back in. And with one blow of his fist, he felled her. Charrington started forward, and then he looked up, and the name above the tavern was his. And he said, with one blow, that man did not only knock out his wife, he knocked me clean out of the brewing business. Because he saw what his product was doing, he gave it up. He gave up a fortune that might have been his, rather than touch money that was earned in such a way. We need to make choices as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we going to live the different kind of life that the New Testament outlines and honor Jesus Christ who purchased us with his own blood? Or are we going to compromise so that there's very little difference between us and the world? I close with this question. What are you willing to sacrifice so that the purity of God's temple will be demonstrated to all unbelievers? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the clear and simple teaching of your word, for these simple illustrations that remind us that we, as the people of God, have nothing in common with a world that is on its way to an eternity separated from God. Lord, impress upon us the need to live in such a way that people will see the difference. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a verse of a hint, an invitation hymn. If you're here tonight and you desire to receive Christ as your Savior, to acknowledge publicly that you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, I invite you to meet me here at the front as we uh, sing. Uh, if you have decided to become a part of this church family, you're more than welcome, and I would invite you to meet me here at the front, and it would be a great joy to see you, your decision for following the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. Let's stand together.